I'll confess that I had a, I had a vested interest in kind of telling Derek that we needed to sing his forever instead of I asked the Lord at that point because I wanted to use it as part of my introduction. Uh, so there that is. That's one of the reasons I wanted to jump in there. And the reason, another reason that I wanted to, to bring out that song as close as I could to our sermon uh, is because uh, it touches on some of what we feel in the midst of our suffering. Uh, you, you'll recall in, in that song, I Asked the Lord, uh, we, we, we sang um, that we wanted the Lord to make us grow in grace and faith. And, and in that song, we talked about how the, the means or the method uh, that our Lord sometimes employs in answering that kind of prayer is actually suffering. Still, suffering is, is sometimes confusing. We, we feel confused sometimes when we, we suffer. We express something that in verse 6 of that song, you might have noticed that we sang, Lord, why is this I trembling cry? See, in, in the midst of our, our suffering, why is, is a question that we will often come back to time and time again. We wonder why we suffer. Like, like the song, I Ask the Lord, Psalm 44 is a song of suffering. It is it's a song that we ourselves can pray when we suffer. And, and we don't know why we're suffering. It, it is a song that gives expression to our, our feelings. And let me encourage you to go ahead and, and turn in your Bibles, if you haven't done so already, to Psalm 44. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, you can find Psalm 44 on page 470. The, the Psalms, as a, as a collection, the Psalms are, are songs of the ancient people of God. And yet, as the, as the contemporary people of God, uh, we, we read them and, and we find that they speak to our hearts today. They're, they're ancient at one level, and yet they're so near to our experience today. Psalm 44, it actually echoes the, the two psalms that precede it, Psalms 42 and 43. It echoes the distressed tenor. Uh, it, it's a psalm that is set in an emotional minor key. Unlike Psalms 42 and 43, Psalm 44 is especially corporate. Far, far more often than the preceding psalms, it uses the language of we and us, while only occasionally reverting to individual expressions. And even when those individual expressions kind of come to the fore in this psalm, those expressions are, are most likely, I think, the nation speaking kind of with one voice about where they are. Psalm 44 follows a distinct, a distinct train of thought. It opens in verses 1 to 3 by recounting God's mighty acts of deliverance in the past. Then in verses 4 through 8, the, the people of the present stress the continuity of their faith and that they have the same faith in God that their fathers had in the past. And then in verses 9 to 16, we're confronted with the pressing problem of the psalm, namely that the people of Israel feel rejected by God. Then in verses 17 to 22, we come across something that may be surprising to us as readers. The people of Israel protest and proclaim their innocence. And finally, in verses 23 through 26, the people of Israel petition God to redeem them for the sake of his steadfast love. And I want you to see this, this flow of thought. So, so let me read Psalm 44 for us now. 
to the choir master, a maskal of the sons of Korah. See, there we see it's a song. Oh God, we have heard with our ears. Our fathers have told us what deeds you performed in their days, in the days of old. You, with your own hand, drove out the nations, but them you planted. You afflicted the peoples, but them you set free. For not by their own sword did they win the land, nor did their own arm save them, but your right hand and your arm and the light of your face, for you delighted in them. You are my king, O God. Ordain salvation for Jacob. Through you we push down our foes. Through your name we tread down those who rise up against us. For not in my bow do I trust, nor can my sword save me. But you have saved us from our foes and have put to shame those who hate us. In God we have boasted continually, and we will give thanks to your name forever. Selah. But you have rejected us and disgraced us and have not gone out with our armies. You have made us turn back from the foe and those who hate us have gotten spoil. You have made us like sheep for slaughter and have scattered us among the nations. You have sold your people for a trifle, demanding no high price for them. You have made us the taunt of our neighbors, the derision and scorn of those around us. You have made us a byword among the nations, a laughing stock among the peoples. All day long, my disgrace is before me, and shame has covered my face at the sound of the taunter and reviler, at the sight of the enemy and the avenger. All this has come upon us, Though we have not forgotten you, and we have not been false to your covenant, our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way. Yet you have broken us in the place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God discover this? For he knows the secrets of the heart. Yet for your sake we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Awake! Why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our belly clings to the ground. Rise up, come to our help, redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. As I said, this psalm is set in a decidedly emotional minor key. And there's a sense of confusion which ends in petition. We're going to look at the, the five different sections of this psalm under five headings. And I'll give you uh, each heading, each point of the sermon as we're kind of making our way through the text. So let's begin with our first point. The, the first thing that we see in this psalm, we see past providence. That's the first point, past providence. Take a look at verses 1 to 3 again and see how, how the, God's past providence is highlighted. 
Oh God, we have heard with our ears. Our fathers have told us what deeds you performed in their days, in the days of old. You, with your own hand, drove out the nations, but then you planted. You afflicted the peoples, but then you set free. For not by their own sword did they win the land, nor did their own arms save them, but by your right hand and your arm and the light of your face, for you delighted in them. These verses communicate how God has powerfully acted in the past because he delights in his people. Unsurprisingly, you'll notice right there in the first verse that this psalm is directed to God. That's how the first verse begins. Oh, God, the people confess that they have heard of God's past acts of providence. Their, their fathers have told them what God did long ago. God's providence simply refers to the, to the deeds that God has performed and is performing. Deeds of creating and sustaining and ruling His creation. Verse 2 then, you'll notice, recounts specific acts of God's past providence. It does so through a series of contrasts. You'll notice in the first portion of verse 2 declares that God, with His own hand, drove out the nations. But that's set in contrast to what God has done among His people by planting Him. You see that contrast there. God uprooted the nations, but then He planted, he planted His own people. This is more than likely referring to what took place under Joshua as he led the people of Israel into battle, scattering the nations who had been inhabited in Canaan, and then allotting the lands to the people of Israel, planting them in that land. And then the second contrast of verse 2, you afflicted the peoples, but them you set free. I think that's merely a restatement of the first contrast. It has in view the same events of the conquest and settlement of Canaan. The people of Israel now free from Egypt and free to settle their own land. While all of what has been said in the first two verses is ultimately attributed to the work of God. Verse 3 really drives that point home, doesn't it? For not by their own sword did they win the land, nor did their own arm save them, but your right hand and your arm and the light of your face, for you delighted in them. It was not by military might, not by the military might of Israel that they won the land, but by the strong arm of God. And did you notice why? Or the reason why God acted on behalf of His people. Look at the last phrase there, verse 3. God delighted in them. He loves His people. And so He acts on their behalf. He, he brought them good because they were His joy. Now, there are, are so many streams of application I think that we could pursue in these verses. But I simply want to pick up on three. One from, from each verse, really. First, notice from verse 1 that the present generation heard from the previous generations about the great and mighty deeds that God has performed in the past. They heard. Let us not underestimate the importance of hearing. Do you come here every Sunday praying that you would hear from God's Word and that God would help you to hear? We should pray that God would give, all, give us all ears to hear and hearts to believe. And, and let's not forget that God has always called His people to pass down truth, the truth of what He has done from generation to generation. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 9, we read this instruction. Only take care and keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen, and lest they depart 
from your heart all the days of your life. Make them known to your children and your children's children. That's what Moses said. This is what Moses' instruction was to the people of Israel standing on the edge of the promised land. Don't forget what God has done. And tell the coming generations of what God has done. Clearly the person who first wrote Psalm 44 and, and sang this psalm had been told of God's mighty deeds. Christian, this is your responsibility. When God called you to faith in Jesus, He called you to proclaim His mighty deeds, His mightiest deed of salvation in Jesus Christ. So go and tell others what God has done and pray that they would become children of the living God. Since this passage mentions fathers, I do want to speak to the fathers of this congregation for a moment. Brothers, in our homes, this responsibility is especially upon our shoulders. And while our church and, and your wife, your wife can and should help, help you, help us in this task of instructing our children in the gospel, it is us that the Apostle Paul kind of grabs by the collar in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4, and says, Brother, bring up your children in the instruction of the Lord. In order to do this, we're going to have to have time for our children. If we're going to talk about God with our children when we sit in our homes or when we go on a walk, when we tuck them into bed or join them at the breakfast table, as Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 7 suggests, then we're going to have to be there. Brothers, let's not fail to tell our children about Jesus. Let's labor so that this opening confession of Psalm 44 would be the confession of our children. While recognizing that it's the Lord who changes hearts, let's pray and labor so that our children might say, we have heard with our ears. Our fathers have told us what deeds our God has performed in Jesus Christ. Now the second stream of application that I want us to think about for a minute is the reality that God is involved in the course of history. The Christian God, the God of the Bible, is an active God. We're not deists. We're Christians, and we believe that God is fully and intimately involved in the course of history, even now. Christian, this is a point that you need to defend vigorously against a world that likes the thought of a deity who's present, but not involved. This is a huge difference between Christianity and almost every other world religion. The minute that we deny that God is involved in the course of history is the minute that we discover we have no hope of salvation. For if God is not involved in history, then that means that God has not come down from heaven and redeemed us in Christ. Thirdly, third stream of, of application, let's just take a moment and rejoice in God's love for his people. I don't know about you, but I was, I was just deeply encouraged by verse 3. Isn't it wonderful to read of God's love for his people? He delights in them. This truth reminded me of what we read in Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 17. The Lord God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Dear Christian, your God loves you. So believe this word from God. Rejoice in His love. Tell of His love. Rest in His love. God's love for you is seen preeminently in the death and resurrection of His very own Son. For God so loved the world that He, what did He do? He gave His Son. 
Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is the mightiest act of God's past providence, and we should delight in it. It is proof to us that He loves us and delights in us. Well, having considered God's acts of past providence toward His people, let's now turn and consider our second point, present trust. Present trust. We're looking at the present trust of the people who first sang this psalm. Look at verses 4 to 8. You are my king, O God. Ordain salvation for Jacob. Through you we push down our foes. Through your name we tread down those who rise up against us. For not in my bow do I trust, nor can my sword save me. But you have saved us from our foes and have put to shame those who hate us. In God we have boasted continually, and we will give thanks to your name forever. You see the committed trust of the people of Israel in these verses. In these verses, the people of Israel, in their present situation and context, stress their continuity with the past. They stress that they worship the same God of their fathers, the God of Jacob. They confess that the same God who performed great and mighty deeds in the past is among them, actually performing great and mighty deeds in the present. The opening of verse 4 is a reverent and humble expression of trust in God. They recognize God as king. And to do that is to, to recognize him, is to submit to his sovereign rule and authority. And this is going to come to bear even when they're feeling like God's not with them in their present situation. That second phrase of verse 4, ordained salvation for Jacob, especially needs to be taken into consideration the context of this psalm. In the context of Psalm 44, I think that phrase is most appropriately understood as securing victory for the army of Israel. We'll see this borne out a little bit later on. The people sang about what took place in the past, and it will be what they will sing about as having taken place in their lifetime. And just as the men of old recognized God's mighty acts to drive out the people before before them, so the faithful men and women of the present recognize God's providence and power in their victories. It was through God that they pushed down or tread upon their foes. And those who rose up against them, this affirmation of verse 5 is met with a denial there in verse 6. The people deny the power to defeat their enemies came through their own bow or sword. No, the implication is they do not trust in anything or anyone other than God. This is reiterated, of course, there in verse 7. But you have saved us from our foes and have put to shame those who hate us. And now, while of course this is a, a temporal salvation that the people of Israel are talking about, notice who the author of salvation is. It's God. God is the one who saved them from, from their foes and who put them put to shame their fierce enemies. Just as their fathers of old gave glory to God for the, for the victories that they enjoyed, so also the present generation is giving glory to God. This leads to a firm commitment from the people. In verse 8, we see that they will keep trusting in God, keep boasting in Him, and keep giving thanks to Him forever. While the people of Israel confess their continuity with the men of old, we too can confess our continuity with those who first sang Psalm 44. Just as God defeated their enemies, so God has defeated our enemies. No, God has not defeated an army or a nation or a people marching to fight against us. He has defeated a much deadlier foe. It is through God in Christ that our enemies of 
sin, and death have been conquered and defeated. These saints in Psalm 44 who confessed God's power in their victories are conquerors. And we, to use Paul's language from Romans chapter 8, verse 37, are more than conquerors. For our greatest enemies have been defeated. Sin and death have been conquered in Jesus Christ. And added to this, Jesus gives His people resurrection life. He gives Christians His Spirit. And in doing so, He gives Christians the power to resist and reject sin and walk in holiness by the power and grace of God. When God saves us in His grace, He not only pardons us from our sin, but He gives us power to defeat it each and every day. And think back to what the people of Israel confessed in verse 6. From a human vantage point, we recognize that they used means to defeat their foe. Right? They, they used their swords and their bows that they mentioned there. They used them in battle. They had to employ means. But they did not rely upon them. There's a huge difference there. They trusted and depended upon God. The same is true for us. God gives us means of grace that we ought to employ in the battle that is the Christian life. We ought to employ in order to overcome temptation and sin. We ought to read God's word. We ought to pray, join with God's people in worship, celebrate the ordinances, and practice self-denial. As one Christian observed, failing to use the means that God has provided shows we despise God's means. And perhaps even despise the God who provided them. All that God calls us to do, He gives us the grace to do. And you, dear Christian, should increasingly be putting sin to death in your life. And when that happens, you should boast in God's strength. Resist the temptation to pat yourself on the back for your discipline and your devotion. You should be disciplined in the fight against sin. But if you, in God's grace, have turned away from sin, then praise Him for that. That strength comes from Him. We rely upon Him. So let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And I think that we actually should boast in the Lord, just as the ancient people of God did. We should boast that God is working in our lives and give thanks to Him. Praise and thank Him for the victory over sin that He's been pleased to bring about in our lives. But let's be sure that we can say with Paul, far be it for me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. This kind of boasting, boasting in God, I think displays a profound trust in God, both in his work of salvation in our lives and in the fruit of sanctification. This, this is the kind of continuing trust in God that we want to be present in our lives. Children, youth, uh, young adults. I, I don't know if you recognize this, but these verses in Psalm 44, verses 4 to 8, are the confession of a generation who have been taught to trust God. They've been taught by their parents to trust God. Even now, your parents are teaching you about what it means to trust God. Far for, 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 from, for, from what I can tell... Your parents are telling you about Jesus. They're, they're speaking to you about Jesus and calling you to trust in Him. Will you make Jesus your King? Will you trust in God? Ask your parents tonight why they are so devoted to Jesus and why they call Jesus their King. 
Ask your parents why they center their lives around the Lord Jesus Christ and His church. Ask your parents what it would mean for you to do the same. It's my prayer that, that, that you, my earnest prayer, that you would come to trust in the God of Jacob, just as your parents have. And that you would one day confess your trust in God, even in the midst of difficulty. Well, having considered the present trust of the people, let's turn now and consider our next point. The people's problem. This is our next point. The people's problem. Look at verses 9 to 16 there. But you have rejected us and disgraced us and have not gone out with our armies. You have made us turn back from the foe and those who hate us have gotten spoil. You have made us like sheep for slaughter and have scattered us among the nations. You have sold your people for a trifle, demanding no high price for them. You have made us the taunt of our neighbors, the derision and scorn of those around us. You have made us a byword among the nations, a laughingstock among the peoples. All day long my disgrace is before me, and shame has covered my face. At the sound of the taunter and reviler, at the, so- at the sight of the enemy and the avenger. It's hard not to mistake. It's hard to mistake the serious and, and fairly abrupt transition that takes place there in verse 9. The psalm, you know, through those first eight verses is kind of moving along swimmingly, as it were, up until that word but. It is at that point that the people begin to express their confusion. The people of Israel clearly feel as though they have been disgraced and put to shame. That's what we see. They actually claim to be innocent in verses 17 to 22, which we'll get to in a little bit. Israel has gone to war, but God has not gone with her. She's been defeated and disgraced, but it's not clear why this has taken place. And these verses amount to something more than a strong why from the people of Israel. They employ a rhetorical device to do this. They use the same language at the beginning of of each, can we say, charge? Just look at the beginning of, of each of the verses from 9 to 14. But you have rejected us. You have made us turn back. From the foe, you have made us like sheep for slaughter. You have sold your people for a trifle. You have made us the taunt of our neighbors. You have made us a byword among the nations. The heart of Israel's distress is that God has not not gone out to war with the armies of Israel. Now, we're not actually given any indication of when this took place in Israel's history within the psalm. And, And I suspect the reason for kind of leaving it somewhat general and not tied to a particular historical event is so that this psalm can be used over and over again in the life of the people of Israel. You'll notice the extreme, uh, you'll notice that the questions and the extreme nature of the defeat kind of keep piling up as you work your way through those verses. By all accounts, an, an outsider would think that God has indeed rejected his people. Israel is concerned That through this defeat, she's been made the derision and scorn of those around her. This sorry state of affairs is the constant plight of Israel. Each person gathered in the congregation could cry out, All day long my disgrace is before me, and shame has covered my face. Israel has been disgraced. Her enemies know it. And they use it against her to kind of turn the proverbial knife that she feels. That phrase, all day long, is present to give us the sense that this miserable estate kind of just drags on 
as the taunts and the snickers and the sneers keep coming, this is the people's present problem. They have been disgraced and they don't know why. There's no doubt that Israel understands that God is involved with her suffering. You have made, you have made, you have made. God is involved. God has permitted it. He's ordained it. But Israel can't see God's purpose in it. It's also important to make clear that here Israel is in no way accusing God of evil. And we want to be careful to avoid this when we're in the midst of suffering. We can't quite understand, comprehend. The scriptures and the people of God in them never declare that God is the source of sin and evil. Rather, they boldly affirm that God is the source of all good. He's even so good that he has devised a plan which comprehends the evil in this world and even turns that evil for the good of his people. We only need to think of Joseph, whose brothers sold him into slavery. God used that evil action of Joseph's brothers to save Joseph's brothers and his family and bring them into great prosperity. Or we could just think of the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. What those people meant for evil in crucifying the Lord of glory, God meant for good. Israel is asking God, why? Isn't this what we sometimes ask in the midst of our suffering? It is, it is often quite difficult to kind of see God's purposes in the midst of our suffering. But our Lord does have a purpose in the midst of our suffering. One of His purposes may be to humble us, to remind us that we do not see and comprehend all things. So we must hold on to the one who does. In that sense, God is drawing us closer to himself. Have you ever suffered through a trial and come to know God better? I suspect many of us have. Through suffering, our Lord may be teaching us about the depth of our weakness. Sometimes we think we're too strong. Through our suffering, the Lord may be teaching us about the depth of his strength. Sometimes we think that he is not strong enough. He may be pleased to lead us, lead us through suffering in order to teach us that we are weak and that he is strong. One of God's purposes may be to deepen our appreciation of the sufferings of Christ on our behalf. And, and so deepen our appreciation and love for Jesus. Were it not for the sufferings of Jesus Christ on the cross, we would suffer forever. In our suffering... The Lord is almost certainly shaping and fashioning us into the likeness of Jesus Christ, even if in that moment we cannot see it. When we suffer, we ought to suffer in faith. And even though the people of Israel do not understand their suffering, I think that Psalm 44 shows us that they're suffering in faith. And I think we can catch a glimpse of this in the verses that lay ahead. So let's turn now. We've considered the people's problem. Let's consider our fourth point the proclamation of innocence. As we do, look at verses 17 to 22. All this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you, and we have not been false to your covenant. Our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way. Yet you have broken us in the place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God discover this? For he knows the secrets of the heart. Yet for your sake, we are killed 
all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. In this section of the psalm, the people of Israel deny kind of every conceivable charge. In, in verse 17, we learn that the people of Israel have not forgotten God. Quite the contrary, they have remembered. Remembered what their fathers have taught them. They've not been false to the covenant. Again, quite the contrary. They have continued to worship the God of their fathers in a manner which He deems to be appropriate. The hearts of the people of Israel have not turned back on God. No, they remain faithfully committed to Him. And this is seen by God Himself. According to verse 21, He knows the secrets of our hearts. Just think about that for a moment. He knows the secrets of our hearts. Does that shake your soul? Or does it soothe your soul? That God knows the secrets of your heart. Are you interacting with God who, as one who is for you or against you? How you answer that question will profoundly impact how you think about your suffering and how you endure in the midst of it. How you think about the, the fact that God knows the secrets of your hearts. For God's people, that should soothe our souls. That He knows what's going on in our hearts and so He can lead us and guide us and care for us. For the people of Israel, this is not just a matter of mind and heart. It's also a matter of their actions. I don't know if you noticed that there. They protest that even in their actions, the steps that they have taken, they have not departed from the ways of God. They, they walk according to God's word. This proclamation of innocence is not equivalent to proclaiming sinlessness. No, these people would certainly know that they're sinful and in need of God's forgiveness. But they have not been unfaithful to God in the ways in which God himself would demand that they be defeated and exiled. They recognize that if they had turned away from God and two false gods, that they should suffer punishment. And here they proclaim their faithfulness and innocence. The innocent do not necessarily escape suffering. These are people who have been faithful to God, who, who love God, and who are committed to walking in His ways, and yet they don't know why they're suffering apart from the reason that they give there in verse 22. Did you notice that reason? They're suffering for God's sake. They confess, yet for your sake, we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. They recognize that God has ordained and permitted that they suffer, and that they do so for His sake. But they don't quite know what that means. There is a purpose. They cannot yet see it, apart from knowing that on some level it is for God. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul picks up on this very verse, and he quotes it in Romans chapter 8, verse 36. In that section, he does confess that innocent Christians do suffer. They, they face trials and tribulation, distress and persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, and the sword, as we read about. But then he reminds them that they cannot be separated from God's love. He goes on to say, Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation. There's nothing that exists that will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The people who first sang Psalm 44 recognize that their current suffering is taking place under God's sovereign, wise, and good control. 
though the reason for their suffering is for God's sake, for His glory, still that doesn't make sense to them. There is unfathomable mystery in it. And agonizingly, this psalm doesn't offer a resolution. So, so what are we to do when we suffer for reasons that we can't see or understand? When we can't see God's purposes in our suffering, the answer, the answer that this psalm gives is that we should pray, which is precisely what the people of Israel do. So after proclaiming their innocence, they offer to God a prayer of petition. So let's turn now and consider our fifth and final point. A prayer of petition. Look at verses 23 to 26. Awake. Why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our belly clings to the ground. Rise up. Come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. It is not difficult to see that in the closing section of this song, the people of Israel petition the Lord to move, to act on their behalf. This section is marked by imperatives and questions. There's still confusion amongst the people of Israel, but there is still certainty that God can act on behalf of His people. Can you see how the people of Israel are actually displaying faith in the midst of this confusing situation? They express both confusion concerning their circumstance and certainty that God can change it. There is not one whiff of anger with God. That's crucial to recognize. For when we become angry with God and His actions, we have moved from submitting to His sovereign will as our God and King, verse 4, to judging the one who made us. The people of God call God to awake from his slumber. Now, is, is God asleep? No. We learn from Psalm 121, verse 4, that he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. Now, we're reading here, this is a call for God it's a, to awake. It's a poetic call or petition for, for God to immediately move into action on behalf of his people. The people of Israel do not want their experience of this suffering to continue on forever. That's why they say, do not reject us forever. Has God cast off his people? No. He will not and he cannot stop loving his people. And yet this is, this is what it feels like for the people of Israel. His love is steadfast and his people will appeal to his steadfast love. But notice something in verse 24. Notice that the people of Israel ask, why do you hide your face? What does it remind you of? In this psalm, look at verse 3. It reminds you of verse 3 there? When we're told that the light of God's face, His joy, His delight was cast across the men of old in the days of old. These are different days, but He is one and the same God. Israel may feel forgotten as the end of verse 24 suggests, but the all-knowing God cannot forget. As Isaiah chapter 49 verse 15 reminds us, can a woman forget her nursing child, that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. That's what the Lord says. You know, moms uh, usually don't forget to feed their children. That's the imagery that Isaiah uses. However, it's within the realm of possibility 
that a mother may forget to feed her child for a little while. I would attribute that to mostly kind of lack of sleep. Um, but there, there does not exist one moment of time in which God forgets his children or their needs. That is not even within the realm of possibility. God will not and cannot forget. In verse 25, Israel confesses her completely humbled state. The soul of the nation is bowed down to the dust. The people of Israel are, are prostrate before God. And it is from this low position, perhaps the lowest point in the whole psalm, that the people cry out to God one last time. Israel calls God to rise up, to come and help her, to raise her out of her misery. Israel calls God to redeem her, to deliver her from her suffering. But in this request, Israel provides God with the basis of her redemption for the sake of his steadfast love. The people of Israel plead with God to redeem them on the basis of his own self-professed, unfailing and unending love for them. The nations around them might deride them and laugh at them as an unlovable people, but this request is striking. While they recognize that they are suffering and even that the sovereign Lord has ordained this suffering, they still turn to him in faith and petition him for relief. This underscores their innocence, their faithfulness to God, their trust in God, and ultimately their confidence in God's love for them. Rather than looking down in the midst of innocent suffering, they look up to the God of heaven, where my help comes from. So we read about earlier in the service. And this is what we must do when we are suffering and we don't, don't understand why. We must, like Jacob, cling to God in prayer and refuse to let him go until he delivers us. We should plead with God on the basis of his love for us to bring us good. It is not wrong to ask God to bring you out of your suffering. The people of Israel petitioned God to deliver them out of their suffering, and you should too. Dear Christian, God is pleased to act and answer prayer. You have a God who hears who answers the prayers of his people, so cry out to him. When you are suffering and you don't know why, pray. Pray and trust. Trust that God is using even this trial and part of his grand plan to work out all things together in life for good. Sometimes we can't say much about our suffering, but we can always say that about it. For that is what the word of the, of the Lord says. Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. As Christians, sometimes all we are left to say is, I don't know why I'm suffering. But I do know this. God will somehow bring me good through it. And so I will entrust myself to his sovereign, wise, good and holy love. Christian, God loves you with a steadfast love. So petition Him to deliver you from your trials for the sake of His steadfast love. And, and if you're here this morning and you're not a, a believer and follower of Jesus Christ, then I wonder what you think of all this talk about suffering. How does 
suffering fit into your worldview? How you kind of think about life in this world? How does suffering fit into your worldview? You know, quite honestly, this is not something that many folks today in the Western world think about. In fact, we not only try to avoid suffering, we try to avoid thinking about suffering. Just think about how many commercials and advertisements are aimed at making your life easier and helping you avoid suffering. We don't even like to think about suffering. But suffering is an undeniable reality in our world, isn't it? It is real. It is painful. The sharp truth that the Bible declares is that suffering exists because sin exists. You see, we've all been made by God. We've been made to love Him and serve Him and worship Him. But just like our first parents, just like Adam and Eve, who God made and created and set in a beautiful garden, we've all sinned against God. That's what Adam and Eve did. They rebelled against Him. That's what the Bible calls sin. It's rebellion against His good commands. When Adam and Eve first rebelled against God, sin and suffering and death entered into this world. Part of the reason that suffering exists in this world is to show us that everything is not okay. Part of the reason that suffering exists is to show us that the created order has been disturbed by human beings like you and me trying to take our Creator's rightful place on His heavenly throne. Sin is a rejection of God's authority and an attempt to take His throne by force. Because of our sin against the eternal God, we deserve to face God's just and eternal punishment of our sin. In other words, we deserve to suffer in hell for our sin. But there is good news. And that good news is that God sent His one and only most beloved Son, Jesus Christ. He sent Jesus into this world. Jesus was fully man and fully God, and he lived the life of perfect obedience to God, his Father. A life free from sin, and yet he died on the cross. And on the cross, Jesus suffered in the place of sinners, of rebels like you and me. Now here's the amazing thing about Psalm 44 and Jesus. I can imagine this psalm on Jesus' lips. Jesus is a faithful follower of God. Praying this psalm. Can you imagine this psalm on Jesus' lips? Jesus suffered everything and more than than those who first sang this psalm. Jesus was rejected by His heavenly Father. Verse 9. He was publicly disgraced with His clothes torn off His body and sold. Verse 11. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter. When He was led to the hill on which he would die as the lamb who would be slain for the forgiveness of sins. Look at verses 13 and 14. He was taunted, scorned, laughed at by those who crucified him. Even more so than the people of Israel, Jesus was never false to God's covenant. Verse 17. Verse 19. As he hung on the cross, a cloud of darkness descended over the land. And he was covered in the shadow of death and judgment. When he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Wasn't he simply saying what verse 24 says? Why do you hide your face? Verse 25. 
How could his soul in those agonizing hours of darkness, disgrace, and desertion not be bowed down to the dust? You know, we don't know whether or not the people of Israel received a satisfying answer to their questions and prayer here in Psalm 44. But we do know that God the Father brought Jesus' suffering to an end. And he answered his prayer. The Father brought Jesus' suffering to an end, not merely in death, but he brought Jesus through death. Three days after Jesus' death, God raised his son from the grave. Jesus suffered a shameful death, but he was raised in glory and honor. Friend, we deserve to suffer for our sins. We rightly deserve eternal suffering and shame for our sins. But if we turn from our sins and place our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who suffered a shameful death for all of those who would be ashamed of their own sins and cry out to Him in faith, will escape the eternal suffering that our sins deserve. Friend, Jesus now calls each and every one of us to turn from our sins and to believe in Him. Jesus calls us to come to Him and so escape the eternal suffering that we deserve and instead enjoy the eternal bliss of heaven where sin and suffering will be banished. You come to Jesus Christ in faith by turning from your sins and believing that He lived for you the life that you have not lived. Believing that He died in your place, suffering the punishment that your sins deserve. And by believing that He was raised from the grave so that you might be accepted as righteous in God's sight. Embrace the one who suffered for sinners like you and me. And if you want to know more about what it means that Jesus suffered and died for your sins, then please come and find me at the door after the service. I'd love to talk to you about that as there's nothing more important you can think about today. We should conclude. As I mentioned a few moments ago, there is no resolution in this psalm. There's no resolution within the psalm itself. The people haven't heard, or at least we're not told they've heard from God, why they're suffering or when their suffering will end. The psalm, the way this psalm concludes, leaves us almost desperate for a resolution. That's the way we feel when we're praying like this too, isn't it? But I think that this psalm concludes right where it should the conclusion of this psalm shows us exactly what we should do when we suffer, and we don't know why. We should turn to the one who made us, and loves us, and delights in us, and proved it to us by giving us his son, and we should call out to him in humble faith. We should call out to God and not stop calling out to God, and asking him for the sake of his steadfast love to give us faith, and strength, and grace, and deliverance. Let's pray together.